0: Hope Church. uh, We want to finish strong uh, this morning in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. So let's go to the Lord um, in prayer, and then uh, we'll get on this this morning. So Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would use your word um, to teach us, to convict us, to uh, motivate us, to be obedient, um, to show our love for you by our obedience to you, God. Um, Lord, we thank you that throughout history there have been people who have loved you and who have loved this the people of this world and who have been obedient uh, to your mission uh, to make disciples of all the people groups, and that we. Uh, have been the beneficiaries of their obedience. Um, And so we're thankful, dear God. Uh, And we also ask that you would help us to be obedient so that others may enter into that same blessing. Uh, We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. I said 18, we're actually starting in verse 16. Um, And it says this in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when... They saw him. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Uh, what we think we have here in this section, um, because if you remember, if you remember last week, we just kind of ended with the resurrection and then the report of the guard, you know, to the um, Jewish leaders and then you know, the Roman soldiers being paid off um, and you know protected uh, by the political. Power of, of the uh, Jewish leaders here, um, and then you know we don't get a, a lot of the details that other gospels give us in terms of Jesus appearing, for example, to the two on the road to Emmaus, or uh, with Thomas, um, you know, in the in the upper room where you have Thomas's you know doubts and then um, you know belief. Uh, and instead, you just kind of get this. This really short summary, um, you know, about, you know, the, the, the disciples and being obedient, um, you know, to go where he told them to go. And it says some worship, but some doubted. And that's kind of like a, a summary of all of these other um, events, um, uh, you know, in terms of the, the theme of it. Um, but, you know, Jesus dispels doubt. Because he has authority. And so, you know, this is, this is really encouraging in some ways because it's not um, that some of the apostles, you know, always doubted. Uh, but it gives a clear picture, a historical picture of what happened. You know, they're not, you know the, the scriptures, one beautiful thing about the scriptures is it never tries to paint people into a better picture, uh, you know, than what they really are. You know, it doesn't try to sugarcoat things and say, "Oh, you know, this person was awesome and, and no mistakes." And so, whether you look, you know, in the Old Testament, when you think about most of the characters, most of the characters you know, had faith and they had flaws. Very rarely do you have characters where there are flaws if they're written about, you know, more than a few verses. Very rarely do you have characters who um, are without flaws. Um, and, and this shows us as well that you know, doubt is a, a normal human condition uh, now it's something that has to be dealt with um, according to the authority of Jesus at the end of the day you still have to have that conclusion that Jesus is true and, and real and what he says is right and we need to obey him we don't stay in the doubt but it, you know, the doubt itself is not you know, a sin um, the, the doubt itself is is um, something, again, that has to be dealt with, but needs to be dealt with by the authority of Jesus. It says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who has all authority? Jesus does. Who has all authority? You know, and... And really, again, throughout history in terms of the life of Jesus on this this earth, his crucifixion, um, you know, what has happened since then, um, you know, again, Jesus has all authority. He doesn't, in his meekness, doesn't always use um, the full extent of his his power and his ability to exert, you know, his will um, on everyone at every time. You know, if, if he did that, you know, every sin would be judged with you know immediately, you know, on the spot. Um, but he doesn't do that. But he does have all all authority in heaven and on earth. And so again, you know, and Colossians tells us that he holds the whole universe together. Again, he has the authority, you know, to to have us exist as we exist. He also has the authority to cease all of our existences in an instant. He has that sort of authority and power. And that obviously begs the question for us, is, you know, do we acknowledge the authority of God in our lives? And again, it's not an issue of whether Jesus has the authority or not. He has the authority. The question is, do we submit to that authority? Do we seek to obey his authority. He has it all. He has all the power. And the reality is that we live um, our best lives in on this earth when we live under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's where our best life is found. Our best life is found in not in you know treating God as in the prosperity gospels as if he's a you know a genie in a bottle. You know, we need to be very again, you know, we just go back as we summarize some things in the book. We need to be very careful that we don't have the philosophy that the Pharisees had. Cuz you you know, may think, well, I have, you know, more money than I ever had had, so maybe, you know, so God's, you know, God must be really happy with me. That's a that's a thought of the Pharisees. You know, I, I have, my family's better off than it's ever been before. That must be God's really happy with me. No, that's the mentality of the Pharisees. So the mentality of the true followers of Jesus is, you know, like Paul says, whether I have abundance or I have nothing, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of that. Whether you abound or have nothing. And so again, it's not. We need to to not think about it the in the way of the of the false religion of the Pharisees, but we need to think about this: what you know, what pleases God, and what pleases God is living underneath His authority. Jesus said, "You know, if you love me, you know, keep my commandments." You know, so that's again living under the authority of Jesus is the. Key, key thing. And then with that authority, he says to go and make disciples of all the, in your Bible, might say nations, but it's, you know, ethne, which we get our term, you know, ethnic our ethnic groups. Um, you know, a, a nation oftentimes has, you know, multiple ethnic groups, you know, within it. Um, you look at You know, a nation like Mexico, um, you know, with many different ethnicities and you know many different languages, you can't reach one group of people there and say, "Well, we've reached Mexico." You know, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Um, You know, and in the past, um, you know, nations were more drawn around their specific um, ethnicities, and so. You know, those terms are a little, were a little bit more um, interchangeable in the past, perhaps, between ethnic, ethnicity and, and nation by, you know, in the globalized world. I mean, you know, and, and even still, I mean, back in these days, you went to a major city. Any major city in the ancient world, there's people from lots of different people groups, okay? So that's always been, but in terms of how our nations, you know, have been drawn after major world wars, you know, somewhat arbitrary, um, you know you have you know, lots of different um, eth- ethnicities within specific nations and we need to you know to recognize that reality. And so he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. Um, there's some things to note on here, but first I, I, wanna, I want us to remember the why. like why does Jesus, Use his authority to tell us to go and make disciples. Well, what does it say earlier in the book? Okay, because again, you know, there's going to be these themes that are you know, th- throughout um, the-, the writing of, of Matthew. Um, and he says this in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were harassed and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." So that motivation that Jesus has the heartbeat behind the commandment to go and make disciples is first of all the compassion of Jesus. It's out of his compassion for the multitudes, out of his compassion for human beings that are he describes as like sheep having no shepherd that they are harassed and scattered. And so, this is the perspective of Jesus. It's out of his compassion for the world that he wants his disciples to pray. And he says this. I mean, and this is what's truly mind blowing about it. He says that the harvest is plentiful. You know, where you know you, you want to avoid um, a theological a theology about missions that gives you this concept that. You know, most people aren't interested because even even if it's true that the majority are not interested, let's just give that as a hypothetical. Yes, the majority are not interested. I mean, the, the scripture does say, you know, the the road is broad to destruction; there are many that are on it. Okay, but even given that mindset, in terms of just the harvest itself, the numbers of people that are ready. It says that the harvest is plentiful. There's not a lack of work. It's not like you know you got a bunch of people standing there, looking at the field, going, "You know, only two of us should really go out there because there's just not much to get." You know, that's not the perspective that Jesus gives. He gives a perspective that the harvest is plentiful. That it's plentiful. He said, the, "The problem isn't the harvest. The harvest isn't the potential." <clears throat> Jesus says that the bottleneck in the in this situation where things get bogged down is that the laborers are few. That there are few people willing to go out and actually make disciples. That's where Jesus says the problem is. So we look at missions. The problem isn't the harvest. The problem isn't resources. You know, the problem is laborers. The problem is laborers. And that's one of the things that I love. You know, that fires me up about the work in Mexico in the camp. You know, what we do there. I mean, this last camp, you had eight young people commit to giving at least one year to full-time mission. That's huge. Now, I don't know that all of them are gonna follow through on that commitment that was made. You see, you know you know how camp things go sometimes. Sometimes there's an emotional response um, to a need and, and the costs haven't been fully weighed. But what we've seen over the years is that many of those people have indeed followed through and honored that commitment. And that's a beautiful thing. And sometimes one year or two years turns into five or ten or you know a lifetime. Um, and really, you know, the the reality is that we can use as many of those people who love Jesus and want to be obedient to Him and who are willing—they're um, all useful for the work. And God gives you know each person. You know, people think, well, I don't have this gifting or this skill or that skill. Well, God. Is the, you know, the Holy Spirit's the one who gives gifts according to what is needed. You know, and he's the one that you know, God uses. You know, it talks about the equipping of the saints. So just because a person doesn't have a skill today doesn't mean they're not going to have it six months from now. But there's work that needs to happen. There's training that needs to happen. You know, discipleship, you know, the people that are going to make disciples have to be discipled in order to make disciples. And so there's a lot of work and a lot of different types of work that go into fulfilling the mission that Jesus gives. And, and you know there's, a, there's another reason, another motivation in that Jesus gives us in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another and as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left i mean we know at the end of the day and the judgment of god and the, the holiness of god demands that sin is reckoned with and is paid for and that mercy of god is available and the forgiveness of god is available and god's preference as we read the entirety of the scriptures is towards mercy and towards forgiveness but His holiness demands justice. And so because God is just, you know, we are motivated because you know, God does make a distinction between the sheep and the goats. God does make a distinction between those who are in relationship with Him and those who are not. That is a, a motivating factor and the necessity to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And you have to wonder, you know. I have to wonder sometimes, um, you know, because you know I've I've heard and seen the stories, and you know I believe at least a certain amount of it is true. You know, I was with a uh, doctor, we we're in London, and it was with a doctor from from Egypt, and he talked about in this uh, particular village. I, you know, just to give a quick summary of it, that you know many of the people in the, in the village were having the, the same dream where Jesus, you know, appearing to them and saying, why do you persecute me? And they were all having this, but, you know, there has to be a question there. You know, that's like, that's not the normal way that the gospel goes around the world. The normal way the gospel goes around the world is that, you know, his people go and make disciples. But, God's still so full of compassion and mercy, He's still going you know, to reach you know, these people, even when His people aren't obedient to go and do the work. That's kind of how I come, I mean, that's my conclusion of the matter. Like, God's still so great in love and compassion, but what individuals missed out on the joy of participating in the mission of Jesus. You know, who wasn't obedient so that God ultimately had to do that? You know, those are the sorts of questions to think about in those situations. But Again, the forgiveness of Jesus is available because of what he did on the cross. The scripture says, you know, he died not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so he tells us to go and to make disciples. So with the go, that means, you know, we just can't afford to sit around and say, you know, well, we hope people come into our church meetings. You know, and and, then that's how we'll grow. You know, we'll we'll provide this experience or whatever. You know, now sometimes, I mean, I want more people to bring more people who don't know Jesus into into the church. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Because sometimes the Lord works in that and people come to know Jesus. I mean, that's, that happens all the time. But, you know, I, I think that the, that the emphasis here is to be proactive. Because even there's a proactiveness in that. There's an at least an inviting. There's an at least a bringing in. A going out and saying, hey, come here and, and at least see this. But there's at least some act, proactive activity happening with that. but there's just nothing that says sit on your tails and make disciples. <laughs> like, that just doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't work with anything. Sit on your tail and build a house. Sit on your tail and grow a company. Sit on on your tail and do, you know, perform surgeries. Like, no, there's a, I mean, there's an activeness, there's a going, there's a working involved. I think, the. I'm going to put it real simple. The reason there isn't more in terms of going and making disciples is because it's work. It's work. It's inconvenient. It's troublesome. You get burdened down with other people's problems. People are messy. I mean, it is not... It's just work. And lazy... I'm going to use the term... You know, lazy Christians don't like to do work. Lazy Christians don't like to pray. Lazy Christians don't like to read their Bibles. Lazy Christians don't like to do anything hard. So, but there's there's just no getting around anything good and useful in your life there's work involved with it. There's work involved with it. You you take two people who love each other, who are are married, and they're married for a long time. You know what? That wasn't just all a bunch of feel-good emotions and just 365 happy days a year. That's not how that works. There's like effort and work that goes into that. Go and make, go and make. proactive work. And that's just not going to sell for a lot of people. But you want me to do what? You see, because you know a lot of people think, well I thought this whole church thing was just about me getting fed. I thought this whole church thing was about me being entertained and inspired that's not going to grow disciples and it's not going to grow churches. It's just not. It's going to be go and work. <clears throat> go and work. And this is the beautiful thing of all the nations, of, you know, really all the ethnicities, all the people groups of the world, because around the throne of God at Revelation, we see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That that promise to Abraham is fulfilled. That in his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know this is one of the great things. There have been people who have claimed the name of Jesus. They have claimed to be Christians, and they have been racist and said and done racist things. In great contrast to what the scriptures teach. And this is a this is a huge and important difference. Many groups, cults, religions, whatever, have had to change their doctrines, the fundamental teachings of their religions in order to come into the modern, you know, world that says racism is bad. The only thing we've needed to change is hearts. We haven't had to change our scriptures. You have to change hearts, but not scriptures. And there's a big difference between the two. But I'm also just going to throw this out there. The scripture to me is really clear. Love God, love neighbor, love enemy. If you can't love your brother who you have seen, how can you love God who you haven't seen? I mean, I'm just, I just don't see a way, for example, you go back in our nation's history, I don't see how anybody part of the KKK gets into heaven. Like, I'm going to be shocked if any of them are there. I mean, now that's the grace of God, if any of them are there, in a huge and tremendous way. But based on just what I read in the scripture, about what it says it does to your heart when you believe in Jesus, hating someone for the color of their skin and actively seeking their death is not compatible. It's just not compatible with anything our scripture teaches. And it's like we say, you know, you can say, hey, you know, I'm Superman, you can put a big S on your chest, you can put a cape on, but if you actually don't do the things that Superman's supposed to do, like, you know, fly and shoot fire from your eyes and like save people's lives, it's just a costume. And particularly in, you know, I I think this is true of many nations, but particularly in our nation, particularly in the South, I think there have been buildings full of people wearing costumes. And there's an evangelization that needs to happen in the churches. There's an evangelization that needs to happen in the churches in this city because many churches in this city don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ they are afraid to. Because they will lose people and they will lose money. Because they actually don't believe God makes a distinction between sheep and goats. They ultimately they ultimately believe that at the end of the day, unless you're like, evil like Hitler, you're going to be alright. And that is actively taught in some places explicitly and some places just by not preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ and it is terrifying that's the worst that's the worst is when you have people who are you know, deceived and self-deceived into thinking that they are right with God and will go and honor him with their lips on a Sunday morning but their hearts are far from him That's sad and dangerous. Jesus tells us to make disciples. A disciple is an apprentice. A disciple is an apprentice. Disciple of Jesus is an apprentice through Jesus. And what does that mean? It means you know a, a growing Disciple, or growing a growing apprentice is gonna become more and more like Jesus as they mature. Growing disciple of Jesus because should become more like Jesus and less like the world year by year. And then we're told baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit now why is this baptizing so important why is that so important because this is the public profession of the inward reality but it is telling the world it is testifying to the world I am identified in the death going into the water and in the resurrection coming out of the water I am identified in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that this is my identity that this like fully makes me who I am and in the early church i mean it's a statement of i serve a different king it's a statement for a jewish person you know jesus is my high priest he is my Savior. He is my King. So it's not the high priest in terms of the of Judaism. It's not about the temple anymore. And those sacrifices, because Jesus was my ultimate sacrifice. And it's certainly not about Caesar or some Roman king. It's about King Jesus. They're identifying with themsel- themselves with that. And for a Jewish person, they're taking a great risk from their own ethnicity and from the, those who rule over them, there there's a risk in doing that. They are setting themselves apart as separate and different. Now, a Gentile person, again, though they're saying, "Hey." You think about all these Romans that are getting, you know, coming to believe in Jesus, getting baptized. And basically, they're saying Caesar's not the ultimate authority. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Man, that is powerful. That is powerful. You know, people say don't, don't, you know, mix you know, politics and faith. Well, there's a certain, faith has a certain political statement to it. No matter where you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, what you are saying is, is that authority that you are under in your nation is not your ultimate authority. That you have pledged your allegiance to one higher. And that whenever those two are in conflict, you're going to pick King Jesus. Like you're making that statement to the world. No matter what nation you're in, if you're in Russia, you say it doesn't matter what Putin says if he does says or does anything contrary to what King Jesus says. I'm going with King Jesus. Forget the consequences. Even if that means I die or I'm in a prison. If I'm, you know, if I'm in China. It's not the Communist Party that I have my allegiance to, but to Jesus Christ. He's my Savior and my King. Whoever our president happens to be at any time is a tiny authority compared to the authority of King Jesus. When our nation does something right, we say, well, praise God. And when our nation does something wrong, we say, that's against the ways of God. Because we have allegiance to one higher. And it says we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven and what that then means is I've got to see things from a kingdom big picture perspective and not through the lens just through the lens of my specific tribe or my specific nation. But I see things through the lens of King Jesus. And that dictates my perspective and how I operate in this world. Think about You know, my friends and, you know, working with the Kurdish people in Iraq. And, you know, you have the, you know, I read to you guys last week about the guy who, you know, his family, they're believers now. And his landlord finds out about it and confronts them and says, you can't live here anymore. That's a cost. In that context, in that cultural context, we're saying Jesus is king. That's a cost. It's a big cost. It's not the greatest cost, but it's significant. I mean, think about that. Wherever you're, you know, living, say if somebody came to you and said, "You know what? You got to go. You believe in Jesus, so we're revoking your loan. You get you're on your own street. You got to go. Can't live in this apartment because you follow Jesus." but we say Jesus, we believe Jesus is worth it because he's the one who went to the cross on our behalf. And, you know, as throughout the people of faith in the, in the scriptures, we count the temporary sufferings of this world to be small in comparison to the greatness of the glory of Jesus. That's what our perspective is supposed to be. Whether we endure suffering or not, we need to have that perspective and attitude that we are willing to for the name of Jesus. For those of us in non-hostile environments or less hostile environments, the question often isn't about, you know, did you or didn't you, but would you? Would you be willing to? It's a Because it all comes down to a heart issue. Because when they're in that situation, the heart either says to endure it you know, as, a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, or to deny it to mitigate or undo suffering. You know, that guy in that situation probably could have just denounced everything right there and stayed where he was living with his family. That's a real choice. You know, he was forced, he was put on the position to make. So it's baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a theological thing here because the name is singular, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that's three. This is, you know, one of the verses that gives us our understanding of the Trinity. The word Trinity isn't in the scriptures, but the concept, you know, is here. Name, singular, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three in person. We don't have time this morning to go into a whole deal on the theology of the of the Trinity, but they are, they are different, distinct persons, yet you know equal in terms of equally God, um, and there is one true and living God. And it says this in verse twenty: teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Uh, okay, so because that was the question earlier, like, well, how do you make a disciple? Teach them to obey all things I have commanded you. Like those, those are what go together, right? That's how you accomplish that. Well, that implies a couple of things. One, if I'm going to make a, if we're trying to make disciples, that implies that I'm going to be striving and trying to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded. Well, what is Jesus commanded? Well, back to the beginning of the, you know, early on in the book. The Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5 through7 that's a great place to start here's what he's commanded you know we again you got to go through that and, and do work to really understand what is, what is being taught and said there but that's what we're supposed to follow. like that's a lot of it and I'll, t- I'll tell you this if anybody is striving to and, and, and living out what Jesus said in Matthew 5 through7, they're going to grow as a disciple and they're going to grow pretty quickly. often ignored but I really think it's it's the linchpin it's like the it, it's the key section of the teaching of Jesus that tells us what his expectations for disciples are so if you're going to know anything in your scripture in terms of how to live in a way that pleases Jesus know Matthew 5 through7. Like, know it. Like, know it by heart. Like, have it become part of, like, who you are. It needs to become even you know more and more of a part of who I am. Matthew 5 through 7. Because that's Jesus' clear expectations for me as a disciple. You don't have to go, Hey, I wonder what would make Jesus happy. He already told you. He already told me. That those who hear that message and you know, obey it, like live it out, build on a firm foundation. You don't have to question like you know what is? how does Jesus want me to live? He wants you to live my Matthew 5 through seven. You live out Matthew 5 through seven, you're gonna be just fine in your walk with Jesus. Now I'm not saying that's all you should know. But I will tell you this, you won't find somebody who's living out Matthew 5-7 through 7 in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, who's displeasing to God. You won't find somebody who's living that out that isn't growing as a disciple. Now, here's the reality of it. your flesh, my flesh, cannot observe all the things that Jesus commanded. People say, well, you know, being a follower of Jesus is hard. Like, doing what God wants me to do is hard. It's like, no, it's not hard. It's impossible. In your flesh. In your flesh, it is just straight impossible. Straight impossible. But in the spirit, in the Spirit of God, it is doable. Because Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always. So, you know, we we believe that when you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And the power of God is available to you. That's why the Scripture says to be filled with the Spirit. Scripture says to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Because currently, I still have my old flesh, and I still have the Spirit, and I have the Spirit of God. And I have to decide all the time, not in terms of salvation, but in terms of like practical daily living, who sits on that throne? My flesh, Or the spirit. And so when I'm not doing well. It's real simple. Flesh is on throne. That's my bad. That's nobody else's bad. That's not the devil's bad. Like he can tempt me. But he can't make me. That's not. Some other person's bad. They can do bad to me. But they don't. I have my own self-will and determination of how I respond to that. There's, when, I'm not, when I'm not on point, there's only one person who's responsible for that. Chet Boyd. The third. Not anybody else. Just to make a distinction. Can't blame my dad. Can't blame my grandpa. Can't blame anybody else. Just me. That is it. Now, this is the humbling part. You're like, well, when I'm doing great, I want to be able to take credit for it, right? No. That's the Spirit of God at work in you. You did the right thing, which was to let Jesus sit on the throne. Like that, I mean, we give credit for that. We give a golf clap for that. Like, you let Jesus sit on the throne. You let Jesus sit on the throne where he belongs. Basically, you gave Jesus... His rightful seat. Now, I mean, just—I mean, just imagine this. though. I mean, imagine the throne of your heart. Just work with me here for a minute. Imagine the throne of your heart. It's there, and you're sitting in it. And Jesus comes by, and you're like, "I, mean, I know it's your seat, but I'm comfortable. I like it here. It's good. You, you, you know, go." Stand over there. We do that a lot, people. That's a sad thing. Like, that sounds so preposterous that the king of the universe, we would tell to go stand over there in the corner while we sit on the throne. That is preposterous. That is, I mean, you you know, there's different definitions for insanity, but, like, that is insanity. And we somehow trick ourselves into thinking, you know what, I'm going to be better off with me on the throne and Jesus standing over there in the corner. That is preposterous. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you de- bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Man, that, that just reminds me, you I know, just had that visual image, you know, the Amazon River, and those, I think they're the, the, um, the piranhas, but I think it's a particular type, I think it's the red ones, but don't quote me on that, but you know, they get in these pools, and man, if one shows any bit of weakness, the other turn and like literally just rip it to shreds in seconds, I mean, it's gone. A turn, bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one Another. Then he says, "But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Because as a follower of Jesus, like if you're truly a follower of Jesus, the, the the purpose in life has been changed, and you actually do want to do you know your spirit you know you want to do the things that please God." But this flesh is in opposition to that. It fights against that. But, he says, if you, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. So he's with us, which does a couple things for us. One, it gives us the ability to be obedient and to live out his commands. It gives us the ability to be good disciples and to make disciples. Even to the end of the age. And so, why does he say even to the age? Because until the end of the age, he's with us in spirit. At the end of the age, we'll be with him physically. We'll see him face to face. So he's leaving, remember the context, he's leaving, he's about to ascend back to the Father, but he says, even though I ascend, I'm still with you. Because he's with us in the reality that The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know, God takes up residence. We are the temple of God in our human bodies, and the triune God lives within us. And so His love and His power, His justice, His righteousness, His holiness, His mercy, His compassion, His perspective are all available to us and accessible to us if we humble ourselves and get off the throne of our hearts, get our flesh off, and have Jesus on. So we need to be about making these disciples, you know, just thinking about a few things um, in terms of how, you know, where, you know, where are we making disciples, where are we striving to make disciples. Hey, You know, first first place, city we live in. You know, where you work, where you go to school, your social networks. Like, these are all places for you to go and make disciples. To participate in that in some way. They say, well, I don't have the maturity. It might be true. Don't have the maturity to, like, fully make a disciple. Well, you have used the resources at your disposal. That's where you are faithful to share the gospel. Like, you're faithful to share your testimony faithful to be striving to live as a disciple. And one of the big parts of that, you know, people need to see the difference that you're actually making an effort. It's not about perfection, but you're actually making an effort to live different than this world. Are you going to make mistakes along the way? Yes, but those mistakes are then opportunities if handled properly. To be humble and say, you know what, I was wrong. Because you know what's rare in this world? It's for people to actually own when they do something wrong or say something wrong, laugh at something they shouldn't laugh at. Because how are apologies given in our world? If, if I offended, I misspoke, I didn't actually mean what I said. I mean, there are all the. Thing. I mean, you, we, every time there's a scandal, just listen to the apology. And you'll see that 99% of the time, it's not actually an apology, it's a justification. It is so rare in this world for people to hear, you know what, in that situation, I was awful. Or I was wrong. I am sorry. It's incredibly rare. So people pay attention to that. It's not about perfection, but it's about being different than our world is. At the university, in the community, through all your activities, at the flea market... Wherever there are opportunities to make disciples. You know, in Mexico, or work there, indigenous people in the mountains, people in the cities, young people open newer doors in Hidalgo. I'm um, just going to throw this out here to start praying about church in Mexico is like, hey, we want to start a church in Guadalajara, which is about 14 hours away on the western side. Of Mexico. I've got some contacts there and um, people that want to reach people for Jesus. It's another thing. The school in Tanzania, that's going to be a place where disciples are made. Wherever God would put any of our people in the world, you know, there needs to be this expectation. Wherever God calls you, He's going to call you there for the purpose of making disciples. You may go because of a relationship or because of a job or because of some other thing, but wherever He takes you at any point in your life, He has put you there to do one ultimate thing. And that's not to cash a check. It's to make disciples. For every follower of Jesus... No matter the profession, job one needs to be, how do I make disciples here? Lord, I want to make disciples here. Prayer for people to become disciples. Prayer for people to come along to help you in that context. Make disciples. That's what our purpose is. To worship God and the outflow of that Go and make disciples. Because some of the most effective people have been businessmen and businesswomen and teachers and janitors and doctors or people in medical any part of the medical field. Why? Because they're with the people that need Jesus. All the time through their natural interactions, and it's the opportunities are there. It's really just unleashing the power of God, the gospel of God that is within you already into that context. That's maybe just a prayer for this morning is that God made your power and your love, your holiness, and your gospel. Flow through me in my context, so I can make disciples for your glory. But you know, it's an intentional thing. There are very few people who make disciples on accident. You know, it's an intentional thing. The desire has to be there, and so maybe then that's if that desire is not there this morning, maybe that's the prayer. Lord, put your desires inside me. My desires be yours. But in each person in our church, this person who hears this message that loves Jesus and you know, wants to follow him, like that potential and that d- potential that have a radical effect on the lives of other people, it's there. It's there. It's within us. Because Jesus is within us. Not everybody would be happy with that. We have to be okay with that. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those who seek to please you above all else above anyone else Lord that you would give us your compassion for all those who don't know you that we would agree with the truth of your scripture that the harvest is great but the laborers are few Lord that we would say Lord here am I, send me send me wherever you want me and right now I'm here so send me into my place of, of work or school or whatever context, other contexts I'm in Lord, send me into my neighborhood into my social networks. Lord, send me. But first, Lord, fill me with your spirit, with your power, with your love, with your purpose, with your mission. So I do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And Lord Jesus, help us to put you on the throne of our hearts where you belong above all else. Help us to be crazy generous with our time, our talents, our resources. Lord, all that you've given us, help us to be generous with these things for the good of others and for your glory. As we take that bread and that cup, Jesus, we acknowledge that you are worth it and we pray these things in your holy and precious name amen